The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. This week, I spoke to Robin Mack in Hong Kong about the increasing difficulty Chinese companies face in accessing American capital. The ability of Chinese firms to list in New York was already imperiled by issues ranging from questions about their accounting or the ongoing tensions between Washington and Beijing. But added to this are other concerns, like those about governance, which were brought to the fore this week when Chinese web outfit Sina received a stingy buyout offer from its chairman and chief executive. After that, I spent some time with Dasha Afanasieva in London trying to get my head around something of a scandal involving fast fashion retailer Boohoo, which apparently has been underpaying its workers at its factories in Leicester. Give a listen. Hi, Robin. How is the latest lockdown in Hong Kong going? Hi, Rob. Uh, it's okay. I mean, everyone's starting to get a bit worried. We're starting to see the third wave right now. So it looks like we might be going back into lockdown uh, in a few weeks' time. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So there's there's been this resurgence. Now, let's put it in context. It's not like Arizona or Texas exploded. No, no, no. This is still a dozen cases. A handful of them are locally transmitted. Um, so it's, I mean, relatively, though, we haven't seen a local case in, you know, a few weeks now. So this is quite alarming to many, even though it's not a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great to see how vigilant the authorities are in Hong Kong on this front. I mean, having gone through it before with SARS and whatnot, I suppose there's a certain amount of muscle memory, and maybe there's something the rest of the world can learn from that quick response. So, all right, let's talk about something else. You've written this piece about a company called Sina, which has done basically like, and what's the best way to describe it, is a management buyout. It's, uh, it's received an offer from its chairman and chief executive officer, Charles Chow, to buy out the rest of the company. Now, they are the owner of the microblog Weibo, so they are kind of well-known. They're also listed in the United States. Give us a little picture. What's going on here with Sina? Yeah, so this is quite an unusual case because, you know, less than three years ago, Sina was actually, um, there was an activist campaign and the company narrowly won that campaign. And almost immediately after they won, they went ahead and issued its chairman and CEO Charles Chow uh, super voting stock. He's now turning around and you know trying to use that and take his company private um, at a pretty low valuation, I have to say. So this is just one of those highlights of bad governance, just really coming back to bite the shareholders and the company itself. I mean, should they have been surprised? I mean, given the, the sort of previous the way this company has been run in the past? I mean, I suppose they shouldn't be surprised that when he does come in and buy the thing, he does it at a at a measly price, basically. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing with China is that, I mean, you mentioned they are the owner of uh, Weibo, which is basically China's answer to Twitter. It's incredibly mm. popular. And the parent company has actually been trading at a really large discount to Weibo, which is also listed. So it's almost like you have the same Yahoo Alibaba dynamic where, you know, the parent trades, you know, way below the value of its stake and, you know, its prized uh, subsidiary. And was Weibo, Weibo is how much is it? I mean, it's worth three points. It was worth about $3.4 billion, I think, according to your story. No, so Cena's stake, which is about like a 49% stake, that's worth $3.4 billion. Um, So the Weibo itself, it's, you know, it's like an $8 billion company. 
So it is actually worth more than the entire parent itself, which is a very bizarre dynamic. Even the stake, the stake is worth more than the parent. Yes, that, correct. Yeah, that's completely. I mean, I don't understand how. But what's what's the recourse for investors in China? I mean, are they going to say no? I mean, that's, that's the thing. So because of the super voting stock that the board granted to Charles Chow, you know, investors don't really have that much recourse because it's a Cayman Islands company. Um, so all you need is a two thirds uh, voting share in order to pass deals through. Um, and it looks like the the management has, you know, a couple more votes. It seems like this is pretty much a done deal. Right, right. Okay, well, that's too bad for investors. I, get, I guess they get a little bit of a bump, but they're not getting anything like the value that should be accorded to them. What is, what's, let's think of the big picture. U.S. You know, Chinese companies that are listed in the United States. I mean, that's in sort of a, this is sort of parent, this is under that umbrella, right? I mean, there have been over the years, companies gone public in the U.S., raised U.S. capital from global investors, and then gone back and bought them out. Or, or And we have, we have quite a few more. I mean, they're including a large company like Alibaba. Tencent, I guess, is another one. I mean, there is, of course, this question about access to U.S. capital markets that we should discuss, too. What's going on there? Yeah, so there have been three very conflicting trends on this front. You know, on one hand, you still have, you know, a lot of Chinese companies that do want to access U.S. markets, and they are, you know, going through all the trouble and listing in New York. So recently, you know, we've had a cloud computing company, Kingsoft, this week, we're going to have, you know, China's top gay dating app, Blue City, that will go public in, on the NASDAQ. And the reason is that, you know, it's quite simple. It's New York is still a very attractive uh, market, um, deep pools of capital, lots of liquidity, lots of trading and turnover. So that's still really attractive for a lot of Chinese companies that want to access hard currency. But on the other hand, you have take privates like Sina. Uh, the other big one is 58.com, where, you know, there is this growing risk of political backlash against uh, Chinese companies that are listing there. So recently, there was a bill that would potentially delist Chinese companies that if their auditors don't fall under local auditing, uh, the U.S. auditing board's oversight. So that potentially is a very big problem for a lot oh, of the smaller words, they, They're saying they should be part of whatever it's called, the PCAOB. PCAOB, correct, yes. And, but right now, there is this weird accounting treatment. That, like, they're not actually able to list, like, the head, you know, the main asset of the company. They have to do sort of, what is it, a VIE, I think it's called. Yeah, so, those are, so there are two separate issues. The first is that Chinese auditors uh, don't fall under the oversight of the PCAOB. So that issue has been really highlighted, especially with the luck and coffee scandal, because of the, you know a lot of politicians are claiming that because you know uh, Luckin was using a local Chinese unit of Ernst and Young fell through the cracks of the PCAOB. Uh, the second is this VIE issue, which has been a long-standing source of risk and discomfort for many people because you know VIEs are essentially contracts between a local Chinese company and a holding company that's usually listed, you know, in New York and domiciled in the Cayman Islands. Uh, so Alibaba is a great example of this. Uh, Alibaba, the U.S. listed entity, doesn't actually own the Chinese business, but they operate through a series of legal contracts, you know, and that's to get around foreign investment restrictions in China, because technically right. a lot of uh, high tech sectors like e-commerce you know, it's restricted from foreign uh, investors. And I guess then there's this sort of bigger, bigger picture, which is the U.S.-China 
relationship. And, you know, we've seen kind of a, there has been Donald Trump himself, I think, has said things like Chinese companies shouldn't be able to access U.S. capital markets and rattled investors that way. That's happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so what you see is a lot of the larger companies, um, you know, such as Alibaba, JD.com, they're looking to Hong Kong. um, So they've done secondary listings and it's almost like a hedge and potentially even an escape hatch, because if all of a sudden they get cut off, you know, at least they have a secondary listing in Hong Kong that they can turn to. Right, right. But then we have the, uh, so so there's this other issue, which is, of course, that the U.S. government is concerned about some, just the tech companies themselves. And the big one, I mean, I guess you call it tech, consumer tech, is ByteDance, which owns TikTok, which everyone <laughs> who has a kid knows is is like become very has become quite prevalent during particularly during the lockdown um, very popular and we just had I think some news this week that uh, Mike Pompeo the Secretary of State has sort of made noise about banning these guys what where does that fit into this whole picture of both access to US capital markets because there's this idea of them going public at least by dance then the question of US China relationship and then social media yeah, I mean, the question of where you, uh, ByteDance goes public is is a really good one because, I mean, this is a $75 billion unicorn. It's backed by many foreign investors, including SoftBank, which probably don't want to see it, you know, list on the A-share market because that's a very difficult exit for them if they have to have, you know, local RMB. So it's unlikely, though, that they're actually able to go public at this point, just given all the political uncertainty and backlash. And it's not just the U.S., it's also India. But on the U.S. front, I mean, you know, the issue is more with data privacy and concerns. So TikTok has always been accused of giving or allowing access you know, to the Chinese government. And that issue has come up, especially in Hong Kong, where you know there has been this new national security law. And because of this, TikTok said it is exiting the Hong Kong market because it's not clear if, you know, if Beijing asks for access to TikTok users in Hong Kong, it's not clear how TikTok will respond. So they've just left completely similar concerns in India now as well, not just the US. Um, so it's it's very difficult to see ByteDance going public. The, Easiest and most logical way is for ByteDance to just spin off TikTok. I mean, they've already tried to distance themselves as much as possible from their Chinese parent. They've even hired, you know, a former Disney executive uh, to run the company so that it looks, you know, less Chinese. But I mean, just given all the political backlash, I think there is some pressure for them to just spin it out completely or just sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Next time we do this conversation, why don't we do it as a TikTok? (laughs) Yes. Thank you very much, Robin. Uh, Stay safe, avoid that third wave, and keep up the good work. Hi, Dasha. How are you? Hey, Rob. I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm, I'm puzzling over some of the stories we've been writing about this company, Boohoo Group. You've written quite a few. Uh, Readers seem to be really interested in it. Looking at the stock price, it's been like this, this amazing sort of world uh, roller coaster. Maybe you just start for, for people like me who don't do a lot of um, online shopping for uh, tween clothing or anything like that. Tell me a little bit about who is Boohoo. Boohoo is a fast fashion retailer that's online only. Uh, it's listed on AIM and it targets uh, consumers. Women uh, make up the, the bulk of their sales and girls uh, and men, but mostly up to the age of 40 and they'd sell uh, a dress for as little as five pounds after it's been reduced um those and deliver really quickly so that you can kind of 
uh, we'll always be wearing something new. Right. So it's fast fashion delivered online, and one of the one of the ways they're able to do this so so cheaply is that they use uh, manufacturing in the United Kingdom to, for, to make all that all this these dresses and things. Is that right? That's right. So around 40% of their stuff is made in the UK, which is actually in terms of labor costs and production costs, it's more expensive, but it allows them to to get it all done really quickly so that you can go from design to, you know, your customer's wardrobe in a much shorter period of time than than on the whole, if you're producing in the Far East, say, which is where Primark makes a lot of their clothes. Right. So so you've somehow you, you've shrunk the supply chain, the time to get things to market. You might have had to use it's slightly, of course, it's more expensive to have people in, I don't know, Birmingham or someplace in a factory producing these things than if they were doing it in Bangladesh. But there's a little bit of a snag, right? Absolutely. Even though it's just up the road in Leicester that they're making um, some of these clothes, uh, it's they still don't really know what's happening in their supply chain it seems because over the weekend uh, a reporter for the sunday times went undercover and got a job in one of these workshops and he found that people were being paid a lot less than the minimum wage which is about uh, eight point seven pounds an hour and they were being paid sort of four um and they went uh socially distancing even though now we've got coronavirus still raging and uh, they weren't wearing masks etc and you know conditions were, were really bad uh, and and it's the, the companies had to react right wait so they they were these people are working during the coronavirus the COVID-19 pandemic and they were being paid below the minimum wage and were not observing protocols that's pretty amazing the, it, it's incredible I mean I don't they, it wasn't wrong for them to necessarily be working. They weren't banned from working, but um, it is particularly, you know, unpleasant because also Boohoo recorded really good quarterly results. So, in order to facilitate that, and in order to meet demand of all these people sitting at home and buying uh, affordable mini dresses and whatnot, uh, these other people in Leicester had to sit there and expose themselves to the disease. And I guess, unlike other um modern slavery scandals this one has possibly hit home uh also because of the coronavirus because because there's been a few cases uh a few other reports back in 2017 for example boohoo being accused of having um bad work practices in their workshops including in, in lancashire i think and there are other stories about leicester in the midlands um but this one, I think, maybe hit home more because then Leicester had a COVID-19 spike and had to get shut down again. So there's this, this direct relationship uh, that's that's been particularly shocking to people. So, I mean, it recalls William Blake's poem uh, to Milton. I don't know if you remember, he calls, talks about the dark satanic mills of yeah. Britain of that era. I mean, is is there um, what's going to happen to these guys? Does it just does this whole thing now call into question this their basically their business model? Is fast create you know fast fashion manufacturer in the UK? I mean, if they were to now increase their their uh, labor costs, would they be still be able to I don't know sell a five dollar five pound dress or um, and still make a profit? 
Yeah, so I mean, it took them three days uh, to come out with an independent investigation uh, to say that we're going to have an independent investigation chaired by a barrister, overseen by a barrister, uh, to look at just the UK supply chain, not global, just the UK. Uh, And the market didn't react very well still. Uh, And I think that is because their very business model is challenged, because if you increase wage costs if the results of of these investigations are that it's not just a couple of bad apples and that you do have to increase your costs overall then they're faced with the decision do they take more of their production out to the uh out to asia uh, outside of the uk or do they pay people more in the uk and raise prices and of course both of those options are really problematic uh, the first, because the business model depends on sort of really fast turnaround, which, you know, uh, Asian companies are getting better at, but it's still potentially quicker here. And the second, because Boohoo's very proposition for consumers, for, you know, 16 year olds going to parties and things is that they sell really inexpensive clothes. Yeah, it kind of also raises public. We've had this conversation over the past, you know, political conversation over the past few years about onshoring, bringing manufacturing back, not sending it off to, you know, mills in Bangladesh and whatnot. And of course, you know, if you this sort of raised the question, like if you're going to do that, the only way to make it work is, you know, by basically, you know, screwing your your workers, then it's not it's not like it's really any better. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of a big picture question then, isn't it, to some degree? Yeah, and I think uh, possibly, you know, one of the sad things about it that that maybe we're not considering that much because the idea of this happening in Leicester is so shocking, is that if they offshore production but don't have the supply chain policies in place and robust checks, uh, is that you could just be exploiting people in Dhaka instead of in, in Leicester. Uh, and it could be just as bad, but less close to home. Um, and, you know, we knew the the big scandal of 2013 when 1,000, more than 1,100 people died in, in a fire in Bangladesh, um, forced companies like H&M to, to, to boost their, their policies. Uh, and it was a really tragic case. And it, it would be a shame if the scandal in Leicester only pushed production abroad without actually considering you know, considering um, the supply chain overall, least of all the impact for investors who are invested in Boohoo and care about ESG and could see further share price falls if there are scandals elsewhere. Right, right. No, it's really fascinating. Now, tell me about the founder of, of, of Boohoo. Who is he's he's kind of an interesting character. Yeah, I mean, the the biggest shareholder and the founder is a guy called Mahmoud Kamani, and he's always been this sort of self-made man, this real success story, like Boohoo is, has been seen in general uh, so far, uh, because he had really, you know, humble beginnings. Um, he started out, at, you know, at a Manchester market stall, and then he joined forces with, with various parts of management, a lot of whom came from Primark and built this this company that was sort of really of the time and, and captured some of these the, these big trends we've been seeing for a long time, which is um, you know fast turnaround of trends and online shop online only shopping and also social media influencers who've been you know pushing these products. So it was a success story, but there was all, always this this uh, 
dark shadow uh, and these questions hanging over it. Um, and the, the other aspect I think that's interesting is that uh, Kamani and some of the other senior managers uh, a, f a couple of weeks ago had said that they were going to pay themselves 150 million pounds if they increase the share price by two thirds, um, which which seems sort of, you know, a long time ago. But um, it is interesting how, uh, you know, they very have a lot of control over this company and also because it's aim listed, it doesn't, uh, you don't need to vote on on manager remuneration. So there's sort of the buck really stops with Kamani and and his family, right? And some of the other founders. Sounds like it's time. You know, this is a sort of a moment where they decide to you know become a, a a much more I don't know I don't want to say legit but you know like really clean up some of their practices and and move on. You know, I mean, aim listed stocks, they always come with these warnings. With some of these warnings, um, but now here's their moment of trial. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, unless uh, companies not necessarily list, listed on AIM, but uh, also have had to go through uh, through this reckoning when they've had to say, are we going to do this labor, labor practices thing for real? And that's not to say that they don't screw up still and that, you know, you don't find children, um, for example, working in their supply chains or other shocking things, but at least they have the processes in place that satisfy investors that they're doing as much as as much as they can. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Dasha. Keep an eye out for more stories on Boohoo. Brilliant. Thanks, Rob. That's our show for this week. Thanks to my guests and hats off to our Uber producer, Freddie Joyner in New York, as well as Oliver Tazlich in London and Jamie Lowe in Hong Kong. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. Stay healthy.